Hello everyone and welcome back to Historically Haunted. I am so excited about this episode because we will be talking about the White House. Not only does the White House have a long and interesting history, but it also has some very spooky ghost stories that I cannot wait to share with all of you. If you're new to the show, hello, my name's Ariel and welcome to my podcast. But if you are a longtime listener, then you're probably shocked to see me back since I have not made a new episode in about three months. So before I get started, I have some exciting announcements and an explanation. When I moved to the new state that I'm in now, I decided that I needed a small job on the side so that way I could work on the podcast and pay my bills. The problem was I got promoted at this job and all of a sudden from a small weekend job, I was working pretty much every day of the month and uh, I didn't have any time to work on the podcast. So in April, I decided that's it. I'm done. I quit so I can focus on the podcast because that's what I really want to do. I also want to be a content creator as well just to be creative because I love being creative and I really want to turn this into a business. So in April, I went on a trip and I fell in love with vlogging and just being myself. I came home ready to quit and some unforeseen events happened that made me not be able to quit. I had to work this job for way longer than I was ever expecting and I got way more hours than I had had previously. So so basically, I uh, I had a plan and it got derailed yet again. And finally, uh, personally, I had had enough. I was suffering from chronic pain and the physical work at this job was making me miserable. I would go to work, come home in so much pain, taking a leave every day pretty much. And I was walking around my apartment in crutches and crying all the time because I was in so much pain. In early spring, I was officially diagnosed with osteoarthritis and IBS. So I had been suffering from chronic pain for a long time, but getting an official diagnosis really did help me. And it made me realize that it's not going to get better. The only thing I can do for myself is to do what's right for my body. And that is not having a physical job. So four weeks ago, I quit and ever since I I quit, I have been working really hard to set things up. I have created a new official website for the show. Here you can learn more about me, listen to new episodes, see my merchandise store, and find links to my Patreon page, plus so much more. The website is just getting started as well. I have big plans for it. And I'm also going to add a blog and the blog will be full of different articles with more history, more haunted places, but I also wanted to have some fun and be helpful. So I'm going to put reviews of ghost tours that I go on, spooky themed events like Halloween Horror Nights this year that I'm going to for my first time, plus dyslexic tips, how I stay focused and more. So please go to historicallyhauntedpodcast.com to check it out. On this website, you can also find a link to my merchandise shop because that's right, I have merchandise merchandise now. People have been asking me for merchandise for years, so I finally took the time and set things up. I worked with Allison again from AZMBA Designs. I hope I said that right, Allison. I'm sorry if I butchered your company name. I will have a link to her website down below. But I worked with Allison again, and she made these cute little freestanding ghosts for me and freestanding words. So I put our freestanding ghosts and words on a bunch of different products. And to celebrate the launch of my new shop, you can get 15% off of all products right now. This offer only lasts for two weeks starting today, so please don't miss out on a chance to get a discount. I have hats, shirts, hoodies, mugs, and stickers starring our cute little ghost friend. 
along with some logo stickers and some really cool just historically haunted words on some shirts and hoodies, please go check out my website and click on the shops tab to find the link to my online store or go to historicallyhauntedpodcast.myspreadshop.com. I have the links to my website and spread shop down below. And again, huge thank you to Allison for all your help. If you need a logo for your business, I would highly recommend hiring her. I have a link to her website down below. Just two more quick announcements and I am almost done, I promise. But um, on my website, I'm also starting an e-newsletter. If you want to get a newsletter in your inbox from me once or sometimes twice a month, depending on seasonal things, please go to my website and sign up today. The newsletter is a great way to stay updated with my show and I will also fill it with fun historical facts, tips on how I stay focused, and so much more. Plus, I will keep you updated with new merchandise sales and giveaways in the future. And please be patient with me as I try to do all this for the first time. Running a business is really hard, and remember, it's just me. I'm trying to manage all of this by myself so I can hopefully get a little bit of revenue coming in so that way maybe I can hire someone to help me. But for now, it's just me. So please be patient as I work out all the kinks, work with my first ever print-on-demand service, and different other things like the newsletter, It's going to be interesting. It'll be my first time making a blog as well. So I have to balance all this out. Plus, I'm going back to school. So do keep that in mind right now. My semester starts next week. So I'm just trying to balance all of that out. So thank you in advance for your patience. Another way to help support the show is by becoming a Patreon. For as little as a dollar a month, you will receive a thank you card with a logo sticker in the mail, ad-free episodes, and you will have access to bonus episodes when I make them. A free way to help support the show is by leaving a free written and starred review on Apple Podcasts and a starred review on Spotify. Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is here and ready to be listened to. And remember to follow me on social media. I now have a Threads account as well as Instagram and Facebook. Links to all of this is down below. And as always, a huge thank you to my Patreons because without you, this would not be possible. They helped me by buying my website. They helped me pay for acoustic panels that I put up in my room to keep the echo effect down. Plus, they helped me pay for monthly host fees, sound effects fees, music, and other marketing tools that I use for my business. Oh, and I'm in the process of getting a new PO box, so I do apologize if anyone has sent me anything with my old address. I've kind of forgot I had those written everywhere, so I took them all down. I had to change locations and figure some things out. I will let you know when I get a new PO box in the future. Okay, that's it for the announcements. I am so excited to be back, you guys. Let's get this episode started after, of course, our monstrous moment. Today's monstrous moment is the Goatman. The Goatman is a famous urban legend that has been around for decades, and the story varies depending on the region. This legend describes a half-man, half-goat creature that terrorizes locals in wooded areas and stalks travelers on dark roads. The Goatman legend has popped up in multiple small towns across the country, 
but the most famous regions for him to hang out seems to be in the wooded areas and farmlands of Maryland and another famous hotspot near the old Alton Bridge in Denton County, Texas. But today, we are sticking with the Goatman legend in Maryland since it is close to Washington, D.C. The legend started in the mid-1950s when family dogs and small farm animals began to go missing, only to be found a few days later dead in the woods with gruesome markings on their bodies. Most people blame coyotes or some kind of big cat. Still, not long after these disappearances, a few locals started to claim that they saw a giant hairy beast with large horns running upright on two legs through their farm fields or in the woods in Forestville. Then more claims came shortly after in Upper Marlboro County. After these initial reports, the sightings seemed to disappear until October 27, 1971, when a local newspaper, The Washingtonian, posted an article taking a deeper dive into the legend of the Goatman. The article's author, Karen Holsler, discovered that the University of Maryland had a folklore archives and she used it for her newspaper article. In the article, she wrote about the Goatman along with other local legends in the area. Two weeks after this article was published, she got a call from a local family near the town of Bowie in Prince George's County with a disturbing story. After interviewing the family, she then wrote a follow-up article explaining what happened. A man named Edward claimed that the family's puppy named Ginger went missing under mysterious circumstances, leaving his 16-year-old daughter April heartbroken. The family, along with some of her teenage friends, helped search for Ginger. The group of girls began searching for the puppy near Fletchertown Road when the group claimed to see a large, hairy, animal-like creature on hind legs running into the woods. This scared the girls who ran back to April's house and told their parents what they had seen. The next day, the body of Ginger was sadly found with its head missing. One month later, on November 30th, the Washington Post had an article titled A Legendary Figure Haunts Remote Prince George's Woods. This article added more to the legend and even interviewed the young men who found the puppy's headless body. It also had a quote from a local police department stating, the legend just keeps getting passed on from generation to generation. But the officer also admitted that they had been getting more calls about possible Goatman sightings than usual. There have been more sightings over the years too, from late night truckers who claimed that the Goatman had jumped out in front of their trucks making them dangerously swerve or hit their brakes to avoid hitting him, from teenagers who were out doing some late night parking in a secluded place, who then claimed to have been chased away from the area by a large, hairy, bipedal beast. Some versions of the legend have him carrying a bloody axe, while others say that he will scream like a goat, snarl like an angry beast, and rush at you, trying to scratch you with its huge claws. So now that you know what the goat man looks like and what it does, what could he be? Some versions of the legend suggest that the goat man is a supernatural being with teleportation capabilities. This is why he pops up in other small towns across the country. While others suggest that the goat man was a man who had a gruesome experiment done on him by the government and then he escaped. Other stories say that he was an angry goat farmer who vowed to seek revenge after he lost his farm due to foreclosure during the Great Depression. In this version of the story, the farmer finds a supernatural way to transform himself into a beast, and he has been terrorizing the Maryland people ever since. 
Despite the differences in the story of how he came to be, the Goatman remains a popular and enduring figure in folklore and urban legends. Teenagers love to tell this story to the younger generations and dare each other to go out looking for him. While he might just be a legend, you won't catch me walking down a dark road in this area at night. If you are brave enough to go seeking adventure in the dark woods of Maryland, keep an eye out for the Goatman. The White House has been home to the United States president and their families for 222 years, with every new administration brings a new drama, tragedy, hardship, or security threat. Also known as the People's House, the House has been through a lot and witnessed many awful things in its 222 years. It was burned to nothing more than a charred shell by invading British soldiers, has seen death inside its walls, protests outside its doors, watched as family members mourned assassinated presidents, survived thwarted terror attacks, and witnessed war room decisions that shaped our history. The House has seen happy moments as well, inaugurations, good history-making moments, celebrations, weddings, dinner parties, and balls. The walls ooze with not only history, but secrets, and yes, hauntings. Let's take a look at the history of the White House before diving into the spooky stories from countless staff members and yes, even other presidents. The White House is located at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. It is the home and the main office of the President of the United States. Every president has lived here except for George Washington, even though Washington chose this site for the nation's capital. The capital of the United States has not always been in Washington, D.C. In the country's early years, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania was the first capital from the beginning of the Revolutionary War until 1783. The birth of a new nation was not easy, and for a while, the country could not agree on where the best location for the central government should be located. The U.S. Congress met in a few other cities over the years. This led to some frustration from the elected officials who kept having to relocate or travel further distances to attend congressional meetings. Eventually, they had had enough of moving around and decided that President Washington should choose a new site for a permanent capital.
President Washington chose land stretching 100 square miles where the Potomac River and the eastern branch of today's Anacosta River meet. The land came from two pro-slavery states, Virginia and Maryland. The land was also far from any large populated areas. Washington felt that the location held a strategic advantage. Since it was next to a main river, they could ferry supplies to the new city easily, and it offered a good route to the western frontier via the river. This was important because Congress hoped to one day expand westward, sparking early Manifest Destiny discussions. Plus, it didn't hurt that the location was close to Washington's personal plantation, Mount Vernon. Once the location was chosen, Congress had another decision to make. How do they create a capital city different than the United Kingdom's version of Parliament? The Founding Fathers did not want their capital to emulate the same as the kings, but at the same time, they wanted the capital to be a place that members of Congress could work, live, and play. So this had to become a full working city, not just a few government buildings to be visited a few times a year. They also wanted to make sure that the residence of the president was not the central focus of the city. They were also worried that an over-lavish design would give the impression of a palace rather than a short-term residence for an elected official. The term president might sound grand today, but during this time, being named president was considered very modest. Congress was a little bit contradictory here because while they wanted it to remain kind of modest, they still wanted the architecture to be grand, keeping with popular styles of the era. Because remember, these dudes were still rich and they liked to keep things luxurious even while at work. President Washington asked Paris Charles Lefont to survey the land and come up with building plans for the new city. Lefont was a well-known French architect who had fought alongside fellow patriots during the Revolutionary War. After the war, he rose to become a well-established and trusted city planner. After learning what Congress was looking for, Lefont got to work on creating plans for a new U.S. capital. The location already had two small yet bustling port towns of Alexandria and Georgetown. He arrived in Georgetown in March of 1791, and he began immediately surveying the land and drawing up plans. Other than the two small port towns, he had a clean slate to build from scratch, and his plans became way more ambitious than Congress even came up with. While they wanted a nice place to work and live, many thought that a smaller city would have been just fine, not the metropolis that LaFont came up with. Most of Congress thought he was crazy, and only President Washington fully trusted his grand plan. His design was based on popular models of architecture from Europe, but with an American twist. He wanted the city to be built around the idea that everyone who lived in it was equally important. Not only did he make the Capitol building rather than the president's residence as the focal point of the city by placing it on the highest hill in the area, what we now call Capitol Hill, but he also created a large area we now know as the National Mall. The mall was to be open to the public, and then he created wide boulevards for easy transportation and made sure that every government building had a public square or park near it, so that way average people could gather and walk around it freely throughout the city. Even though this was a place for government, it was meant to not feel oppressive like a palace or royal land that usually had walls and gates. Something to keep in mind, especially for my out-of-the-country listeners, is that Washington, D.C. is not its own state, nor is it located within a state. It is its own district, and the D.C. part stands for District of Columbia. 
Congress decided this because they did not want any state to have too much power by being the home of the national government. The solution was a separate district. Now I could go on and on about the building of the capital city, but I'm here to talk about the White House. So if you want to learn more about the city planning and other buildings, I have some excellent resources in the show notes down below for you to check out. After the plans for the city were accepted, Washington himself marked the spot for the north walls and entrance to the White House. Once the location was chosen, decisions needed to be made on what the president's residence should look like. A design competition was held for the president's residence. Washington, Jefferson, and a few other Congress members were on the judging committee. A design from Irish architect James Hoban was selected because they found it to be the most modest of all of the entries. To build the entire city, they needed a major workforce. Congress was hopeful that builders from Europe and other states would want to help out, but they overestimated people's overall interest in the project. So the new question was, who was going to build D.C. now? Well, sadly, the answer was enslaved peoples from various local plantations. Washington, D.C. was built on land from two different slave states, Virginia and Maryland. Both of these states had large plantations scattered throughout the area. The government put out various newspaper advertisements to local plantation owners. According to one newspaper article, the ad stated that they wanted to, quote, hire good laboring Negroes. Masters are required to clothe them well and provide one blanket. The commissioners agreed to feed them and pay the owners 21 pounds per year. By doing this, the federal government was technically leasing enslaved people, not actually owning them. But that still does not change the fact that our capital was built on the backs of enslaved peoples, free African-American workers, and poorly paid immigrants who many of them were not yet citizens. Today, the front of the White House, the north side, faces Lafayette Park. Back when the White House was being built, this land was filled with barracks, huts, and tents built to house hundreds of laborers. In 2020, the White House Historical Association started a project called Slavery in the President's Neighborhood. Through this project, historians continue to work to tell the stories of both enslaved and free African Americans who built and worked at the White House, as well as other houses and buildings throughout Washington, D.C. and the U.S. Capitol. So something to think about the next time you visit D.C. and look around at all the buildings. The construction of the White House began on October 13, 1792, when the cornerstone was laid. The White House was built in the neoclassical style and modeled after the Leinster House in Dublin, just on a more modest scale. The exterior of the house was built of sandstone, which was then painted white. It took eight years to build and cost around $230,000. That's $3.5 million today. Philadelphia stopped being the country's capital on June 11, 1800, and President John Adams and his wife Abigail moved into the White House. When President Adams and his wife Abigail moved into the White House, it was not yet complete, but it was deemed livable. First Lady Abigail was shocked at how large and empty the house was when she first walked in. In a letter that she wrote to her daughter, she talked about the unfinished home. The house was unheated. There was no plumbing, no fence, and no drying yard, leaving her to hang all the laundry inside the Great East Room. She also mentioned that the main staircase had not yet been installed. 
leaving her and her husband to only be able to use the ground floor for over a year. In the letter, she was optimistic, though, about the plans, stating that she thought that the house was built on a beautiful spot capable of every improvement. Every president since has changed the White House in some way, and each first lady has added her own flair to the home. When Thomas Jefferson was elected, he added two water closets and two terrace pavilions. He also drew up plans for two oversized column porticos to be added at a future date. Jefferson held the first inaugural open house in 1805. He also opened the house for public tours and receptions on New Year's Day and the 4th of July. When the White House first opened, you could not only picnic on the lawn, but you could walk right up to the front door and knock. If a staffer let you inside, you might be able to speak to the president right then and there or leave a calling card and expect an appointment to then meet the president later. Sharp contrast to today when just hopping the fence could get you shot by a sniper on the roof, but I'll get to that later. The White House saw its first real security threat during the War of 1812. For those of you who don't know U.S. history, despite its name, the War of 1812 lasted more than one year. The war lasted from January 1812 to February 1815, and the White House found themselves back at war against the British due to lingering resentment that finally bubbled over. This war was really about a laundry list of reasons, mainly disagreements over trade routes, territory lines, Western expansion, Native American policy, and the fact that each side still hated each other ever since the Revolutionary War. When Great Britain's Royal Navy imprisoned some American sailors, that was enough to spark the fire to begin the war. The British wanted to send a message and use the war to do it. They set their sights on the main symbol of everything they despised, the capital, most importantly, the White House. A British fleet anchored at the mouth of the Patuxent River in Maryland on August 17, 1814, about 35 miles from Washington, D.C. President Madison left to join 6,000 militia who were marching to Maryland to fight the British, leaving his wife Dolly Madison in the residence. Mrs. Madison refused to believe that British troops would reach Washington. She was so convinced that she actually scheduled a dinner party for August 23rd. However, none of her 40 invited guests accepted her invitation. Instead of hosting the party, Dolly spent a great deal of time on the White House roof using a spyglass, hoping to see proof that the British were stopped. On August 24th, the fighting was only five miles away and people in the city could hear the cannons booming and people started to evacuate. Finally, it was clear that Dolly must also flee Washington. She scrambled to pack up important government papers and grabbed historical artifacts, loading them into wagons. Before leaving, she ordered that the large painting of George Washington be removed from the wall to keep it from the British. The White House steward and another enslaved worker began removing it, but they did not have the proper tools. Struggling to take it down for quite a while, they began to hear fighting getting closer and they knew they were running out of time. Dolly told them to break the frame and take the canvas out. Around this time, two friends of the Madisons arrived to check on her. Dolly then gave them the painting to hide and keep safe. After this, Dolly headed to the family's mansion in Georgetown. The British made it to the White House just a few hours later as it was getting dark. Admiral Cockburn and General Ross ordered that the U.S. Capitol and Library of Congress to be burned. Then they headed for the White House. They broke in, stealing whatever they could find. Windows were smashed and furniture was piled into the middle of some rooms. 
Next, the soldiers lit torches and threw them through the windows, setting the house on fire along with several other government buildings. By this point, most of DC was ablaze and the flames filled the skies with an eerie orange glow that was reportedly seen for miles. The next morning, August 25th, fire was set to the Navy Yard, but then something strange happened. Around noon, dark clouds came over the city, and by two o'clock that afternoon, a full-blown hurricane hit the city. Sheets of pounding rain coupled with dangerous lightning and howling winds swept through the city streets. The rain extinguished the flames, and a large tornado touched down in the middle of Washington, picking up heavy British artillery and tossing them like toys around the city and into the river, rendering them useless. More British troops were injured and killed due to this freak storm than the battle the day before. The storm raged on for over two hours, forcing the British to retreat from the city and they never returned. Three days later, President Madison returned to find DC destroyed with nothing but empty shells of what used to be government buildings. James and First Lady Dolly set up temporary residence in the still standing Octagon House that was across the street from the White House. The inside of the White House was completely destroyed by the fire and the walls were charred from the flames. Architect James Hoban returned to oversee the three-year rebuild of the White House. The War of 1812 ended in a draw because the war was expensive on both sides and neither side was gaining much ground. President Madison and his wife returned to the White House in October 1817, even though it wasn't quite finished. Thanks to Dolly's quick thinking, important documents were saved and the portrait of George Washington still hangs in the East Room today. Since the burning of the White House, many more changes have been made. President James Monroe and First Lady Elizabeth Monroe made the White House more luxurious than ever. They imported furniture, drapes, and other conversation pieces from France. Monroe also added Jefferson's original plans for a south portico with grand columns in 1824, and the north portico was added in 1829. When Andrew Jackson took office in 1829, his supporters crowded the White House on Inauguration Day. The crowd became so overwhelming that Jackson himself had to sneak out the back way and went to stay at a hotel while the mob ruined much of the furnishings. Jackson was a super controversial president. He is not only responsible for the deaths of tens of thousands of Native Americans from forced relocations like the Trail of Tears, but his personal life was a wild one. He was known to be violent, not only engaging in fights, but he often egged other people into getting into them on his behalf. He was a notorious gambler and he killed a man in a duel and participated in many of them. Historians estimate that he partook in anywhere from 5 to 100 duels. He was also the first president to survive an assassination attempt. While he was leaving the Capitol building on January 30, 1835, a man named Richard Lawrence, only feet away from him, jumped out of the crowd, pointed a pistol at Jackson, and fired it. However, the gun misfired. Despite all of this, he won the popular vote three times, and he was known to throw huge, crazy parties. 
At Jackson's last big public reception, he served a huge slab of smelly cheese that was placed in the center of the entry hall. It took two hours for hundreds of people to eat the cheese, and the smelly odor lingered for over a year. Not only has the White House seen several changes and weird moments, but it's also witnessed many deaths. The first to die in the White House was President William Henry Harrison. President Harrison was sworn in as the ninth president of the United States on March 4, 1841, and he had one of the shortest terms in office. He died only 31 days into his presidency. Many thought that Harrison died after catching a cold that turned to pneumonia during his record-setting 105-minute speech in the rain, but modern researchers think that he contracted a high fever from the contaminated water supply at the White House. Whatever the reason, his term was the shortest in U.S. history and he was the first death inside the House. On September 10, 1842, Letitia Christian Taylor, the wife of the 10th president, John Taylor, passed away after suffering from a stroke. On July 9, 1850, the nation's 12th president, Zachary Taylor, passed away from some kind of digestive ailment. In 1861, Abraham Lincoln had just been sworn in as the 16th president of the United States, and the beginning of his presidency was anything but easy. The day that Lincoln took office, the country was on the brink of civil war. The American Civil War started when Confederate soldiers fired on Fort Sumter on April 12, 1861. The war lasted an agonizingly long four years, lasting from 1861 to 1865, leaving an estimated 620,000 soldiers dead. Some of these deaths were not officially recorded, so the number could be higher, and some of these deaths are believed to be women soldiers. An estimated 1,000 women disguised themselves as men to fight on both sides, and if they were discovered, they were promptly discharged. When discovered dead on battlefields, some officers refused to count them as an official military death. The Civil War was the bloodiest conflict in American history. The war also caused around 50,000 civilian deaths and thousands of unrecorded enslaved peoples were also killed. And the war left the South decimated, leading to years of harsh reconstruction. President Lincoln was a sensitive man who took the endless list of casualties very hard. He and his wife, Mary Todd Lincoln, had four boys together, but sadly, only one would live to adulthood. When the Lincolns moved into the White House, they had already lost one of their sons, Edward Baker Lincoln. Edward was only three years old, a month shy of his fourth birthday, when he passed away of chronic consumption. Since the term consumption was used to describe many wasting diseases during this time period, historians still don't know if Edward died of tuberculosis or possibly thyroid cancer. While in the White House, tragedy struck the Lincolns yet again when their 11-year-old son William passed away on February 20, 1862, in the Prince of Wales room. Today, this room is the president's dining room. William died of typhoid fever, another victim of the White House's tainted water supply. 
Mrs. Lincoln's wardrobe designer and seamstress, Elizabeth Keckley, was present when William passed away. Elizabeth was a former enslaved woman who was abused from a young age. As she grew older, she worked hard to purchase her and her son's freedom. After this, she settled in Washington, D.C. and became a famous seamstress. Many prominent ladies hired her to create stunning gowns. When Mary Lincoln moved into the White House, she also hired Elizabeth and they became very close. As Elizabeth tried to comfort an inconsolable Mrs. Lincoln, she watched as Mr. Lincoln, overcome with emotion, bent his head over his son, saying, My poor boy, he was too grand for this earth. God has called him home. I know that he is such better off in heaven, but then we loved him so. It is hard, hard to have him die. Lincoln then got up and walked down the hall into his secretary's office and said, Well, Nikolai, my boy is gone. He's actually gone. Then he burst into tears, walked past his secretary, and closed his office door. Mary Lincoln was never the same. Now mourning the loss of two of her children, she was determined to make sure that they were safe on the other side and even tried to talk to them. Spiritualism was very popular during the Victorian times, but its popularity increased in America during the Civil War when thousands of family members were left with unanswered questions about how their loved ones died. Hosting seances became a typical nightly event and many families would do this in their homes, desperate for answers from their deceased loved ones. Mary Lincoln began to search for answers after the passing of Willie and she found the Lauries, a group of mediums from Georgetown. After doing a few seances with the group, she found comfort in them and began holding seances herself inside the White House's Red Room. There is evidence that she held at least eight official seances inside the Red Room, possibly more, and that President Lincoln himself attended a few of them. Mary believed that her two sons, Willie and Eddie, came to see her on multiple occasions. She claimed that they would come to the foot of her bed and talk to her. She also said that she talked to them very often when she would hold seances. Not long after the Civil War ended, President Lincoln was shot by John Wilkes Booth on April 14, 1865, while attending a play in Washington, D.C. He died in a house across the street from Ford's Theater in the early morning hours of April 15th. Never before had a president been assassinated, and his death rocked the country. The North was just celebrating the end of the Civil War when this happened, so this was a huge shock. After his death, Lincoln's vice president, Andrew Johnson, took over as president. Now from here, I'm going to jump around a bit because there's no way I have time to talk about all 46 presidents. So please go down to the show notes to find out more. And if I skipped your favorite president, I might have something about them down below in the show notes. As time went on, there were more deaths inside the White House and sadly assassinations of other presidents did follow. Frederick Dent, President Ulysses S. Grant's father-in-law, passed away at age 88 while staying at the White House in 1873. Now, the White House is not all doom and gloom. It has seen some happy times, too. On May 21, 1874, President Ulysses S. Grant's daughter, Nellie Grant, married an English aristocrat. The wedding took place inside the White House and had 250 guests. The rooms used for the wedding and reception were covered floor to ceiling in floral decorations. James Garfield was sworn into office as the 20th President of the United States in 1881. Unfortunately for President Garfield, 
He did not have much time to make any changes to the White House because he was shot only four months into his presidency by Charles Guiteau while waiting at a train platform at the D.C. Railroad Station. The doctors could not find the bullet and even acquired help from Dr. Alexander Graham Bell to try to find where the bullet might be located using electricity. But it was no use. Garfield died a slow and painful death, lasting three months. Garfield begged his cabinet and his wife to take him to the seashore. So men worked day and night to build a railroad track that could take the train right to the front door of Garfield's summer cottage in New Jersey. He passed away at his summer home on September 19, 1881. As time went on, more deaths in the White House followed. On January 1st, 1883, Elijah Hunt Allen, the minister of the Kingdom of Hawaii, passed away after having a heart attack during a diplomatic reception hosted by then-President Chester A. Arthur. When President Grover Cleveland was sworn into office in 1885, he was unmarried. In history, there have only been two unmarried elected presidents, Cleveland and Buchanan. Cleveland did not stay unmarried for long, though, because on June 2, 1886, he married Frances Clara Folsom inside the Blue Room of the White House. This leaves Buchanan as the only U.S. president never to be married, and Cleveland is the only U.S. president to be married inside the White House. Another first lady named Carolyn Harrison passed away of tuberculosis on October 25, 1892. Her husband was President Benjamin Harrison. Caroline was credited for doing many things to the White House while she lived there. Not only was she in charge of an extensive remodel, but she also had electricity installed to the White House for the first time and started the tradition of having a decorated Christmas tree inside the White House. During President McKinley's first term in office, which began in 1897, he and his wife, First Lady Ida McKinley, agreed to keep the White House open to the public and have it operating with the newest technology of the age. Ida also opened her home for an extensive photo shoot so that way all Americans can see what the White House looked like for the first time. I have the pictures linked down below, but I have to say my favorite picture from this photo shoot is the guard watchman's house in the front entrance gate. The guard has a matching dog house built for his dog named Dash. I thought that was just so funny. The McKinleys sadly lost both of their daughters when they were children, so they welcomed with open arms family members and staff members to allow their children to play on the South Lawn. In the photos, you can also see that the White House had office spaces crammed next to elegantly decorated living areas with a large room used as a telegraph office. In the early 1900s, William McKinley had just entered his second term in office and just brought the U.S. to victory during the Spanish-American War. He went to Buffalo, New York's Pan-American Exposition for a two-day tour. This exposition was a popular World's Fair that had thousands in attendance to see the latest gadgets and scientific discoveries. On September 5, 1901, 116,000 people came to watch President McKinley give a speech and to watch a fireworks display afterwards. The next day, on September 6, 1901, President McKinley was part of a public meet-and-greet at the Temple of Music Theater. This scheduled expo boasted the chance to shake the president's hand. 
McKinley's security detail and his staffers were worried about this, so they added extra guards and even soldiers to the president's protection detail. The staff even tried to cancel it, but McKinley wanted to keep it on schedule. Even with added protection, this did not deter one man named Leon Kelzogs. Before entering the venue, Leon wrapped a pistol in a handkerchief and placed it in his pocket. When it was his turn to meet the president, he pulled out his gun and shot President McKinley twice at point-blank range. There was a few seconds of stunned silence from the crowd before a tall African-American man that was behind Leon in line named James Parker, also known as Big Jim, punched Leon and wrestled the gun away from him while preventing him from firing a third shot. This action broke the shock and the army, guards, and police who were in the room joined Jim in beating the pulp out of Leon. Even as President McKinley lay on the floor injured, he ordered the men to stop hitting Leon, who was then drugged from the room by guards. President McKinley was then rushed to the Pan American Exposition Hospital and taken into the operating theater for surgery. At first, the president seemed to rally, but the surgeon could not find one of the bullets during the first surgery leaving the wound to fester. On September 14, 1901, President McKinley passed away with his wife Ida by his side. After his death, then-Vice President Theodore Roosevelt took office. When President Theodore Roosevelt began his term, he started calling the president's residence the White House, giving it its official name in 1901. President Roosevelt got sick of not having an official office space to work from, so he added two of the most iconic rooms to the White House. He had the large greenhouses removed on the west side to make way for the Oval Office and an executive wing. They were constructed in 1909, and this side of the White House became known as the West Wing. Sadly, another First Lady passed away on August 6, 1914. Ellen Wilson, the wife of Woodrow Wilson. Ellen had tripped and fell in her bed bedroom and when the doctors came to evaluate her, he discovered that she was in the late stages of Bright's disease. Ellen refused to tell her husband and acted as if all was well until just two days before her death. As time went on, the White House continued to change. An indoor swimming pool was added to the West Wing in 1933 for President Franklin D. Roosevelt. Swimming was the only exercise that he was able to do after contracting polio, and the March of Dimes helped raise the money for the pool rather than use taxpayer money. This indoor pool was later covered by flooring and changed into the White House press room. World War II began when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, and the U.S. did not get involved right away. At first, they were only supplying the Allies with weapons, but after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, the U.S. joined the fight. President Roosevelt's security detail wanted to build a bunker under the White House for the president's protection. However, Roosevelt did not like that idea. Instead, he kept asking for there to be a new East Wing constructed and for it to be used as a museum. So his security decided to compromise. They would build a new East Wing Museum and use its construction to hide the fact that they were also building a new bunker for the president's protection. The project was completed in 1942. This bunker is still sitting ready to be used as needed, and it's been updated over the years. The White House would have its biggest renovation and expansion during the Harry S. Truman administration. As soon as President Truman moved in in April 1945, he noticed that there were cold drafts and unusual popping 
and creaking noises throughout the residence. He joked that the ghosts of former presidents were probably arguing. He then brought in engineers in 1948 to have a look, and they found that the White House's structure was weak and in danger of collapse. The president and his family moved out across the street to the Blair House until the work was completed in 1952. Before the remodel was complete, the White House would be host to yet another death. On December 5, 1950, President Harry S. Truman's secretary, Charles Ross, died at his desk of a coronary occlusion. During the remodel, the White House was completely gutted, leaving a huge open space. They put in 126 columns along with metal framing to support the new interior walls. They also created a two-story basement. President Truman and First Lady Bess Truman were involved in designing many of the state rooms and decorating the second and third floors. They proudly gave a televised tour of the completed White House renovation on May 3rd, 1952. The last person to pass away in the White House was Margaret Wallace, the mother of First Lady Bess Truman. She passed away on December 5th, 1952, at the age of 90. And according to records, it sounds like she did not like her son-in-law at all. She thought that even being president was not good enough for her daughter and refused to call him Mr. President. She only addressed him by Mr. Truman. When the 60s rolled around, the civil rights movement was in full swing, and with it came massive protests across the country. The president's security was tightened, but sadly, it was not enough for young President John F. Kennedy. After being sworn into office in 1961, he received a large number of death threats. Receiving death threats is nothing new to becoming a president, sadly, but President Kennedy would not live to see out his term. On November 22, 1963, Kennedy was killed by Lee Harvey Oswald while riding in an open-top convertible in a parade through Dallas, Texas. Never had a president's death been caught on camera before, and it is one of the most analyzed videos of all time. The country was in shock, yet another president was killed by an assassin. Only this time, it was with live media broadcasting it, keeping people glued to their TVs for hours. While sadly President Kennedy was killed during his term in office, he did have one important room added to the White House, the Situation Room. He thought that the failed Bay of Pigs invasion in 1961 was due to lack of real-time information, so he constructed a secure communication room. This room has been used by every president since during war times or any time sensitive information needs to be shared between top military leaders and the president. The security at the White House has become more strict over the years. Where people could once picnic is now gated and heavily guarded by trained snipers on the roof. When the 9-11 terror attacks happened, President George W. Bush used the bunker for protection and to get word of what was going on from military commanders. On May 1st, 2011, President Barack Obama, surrounded by important members of his cabinet, including military leaders and experts, followed along with real-time updates of a top-secret raid led by U.S. Navy SEALs. The operation was to kill Osama bin Laden, the main leader behind the 9-11 terror attacks. After the successful raid, President Obama let the public know with a late-night unscheduled broadcast. Outside the White House, a crowd gathered behind the fence to cheer and remember those who passed away on 9-11. Today, the White House has six levels, 132 rooms, one bunker, 
and 35 bathrooms. The first family lives on the top two floors, and the rest of the floors are used for political meetings, office hours, balls, dignitary dinners, and speeches. There is also an outdoor pool, a movie theater, and its own bowling alley. The Oval Office is still considered the president's main office. Some sections of the ground floor are still open for public tours when the president is not home. The White House is also covered top to bottom with heavy security. The building's windows are bulletproof, and it has sniper sensors. These sensors can not only tell that someone has shot at or near the White House, but it can direct the Secret Service as to what direction that the shot came from. There is also a no-fly zone around the property where only authorized aircraft are allowed to fly. The Secret Service also built vehicle barriers to keep people out and keep them from being able to drive through the White House perimeter. If you want to visit the White House, you will have to go through heavy state-of-the-art security checks. Even people who work in the White House have to go through these same checks every time they enter. Strategically placed lighting, cameras, and other sensors are also key elements to keep the first family safe. All of these things make sense, but I have to tell you, as someone who has been to the White House before once, the creepiest thing to me was seeing the armed guards on top of the roof. And uh, these guards are allowed to shoot on sight, so please keep that in mind if you ever think that hopping the fence would be fun. It won't be, especially if they get a green light to shoot, so please don't do it. The security doesn't end there. There are also secret tunnels and multiple evacuation routes if the need ever arises to move the president away from D.C. The president's limo also has the highest security possible. It's called the Beast, and every few years it is updated with new features, all designed to keep the president safe. It's basically a tank limo with Batmobile features. Needless to say, the White House has been through a lot in its over 200-year history. And with all that history, it's hard to imagine that this place would not be haunted. In fact, ghost sightings have happened so often that the White House website itself has pages dedicated to famous ghost sightings at the White House. So now it's time to find out who actually haunts the people's house. While the White House might have state-of-the-art security, it does not keep out the countless ghosts that are seen all over the property. And the paranormal claims from this location are considered to be some of the most credible. We will start our tour on the grounds before making our way inside. Many security guards and guests at the White House have been shocked to see the ghost of a British soldier. Many have reported seeing a British soldier in an early 1800s uniform wandering the grounds carrying a torch. There was also one report of his ghost being seen trying to set a bed on fire inside one of the rooms of the White House. Staff members also hear strange noises late at night coming from the dark and empty grounds. When this apparition is seen or approached, he seems to not pay any attention to those around him. The soldier appears to be caught in some kind of time loop, replaying the same moments that he would have done when the White House was burned during the War of 1812. The ghost of Dolly Madison is known as the protector of the Rose Garden. The Rose Garden is a famous location on the grounds of the White House. It has been used for speeches and other special and large events like state's dinners. When First Lady Edith Wilson lived at the White House, she decided that she wanted to move the Rose Garden to a new location. 
so she sent two gardeners to begin work. As they began the project, they were both startled when they were confronted by an angry Dolly Madison. She yelled at the men, scaring them away. Dolly created the original Rose Garden in this location, and apparently her ghost was not happy to see the new first lady wanting to move it. She appeared more than once, warning them not to change the location of her precious Rose Garden. Not wanting to upset her ghosts, the relocation plan was shelved and the Rose Garden remains in the same location. What would any famous location be without its resident lady in white? As the story goes, late one night in 1897, a police officer for the White House was walking the grounds when he noticed a light in the conservatory area on the west side of the building. The officer suspected that someone was stealing an exotic flower growing inside the White House. When he entered, he was surprised to see a beautiful lady dressed in 19th century period clothing. When he spoke to her, she immediately disappeared, but he did hear what he described as a musical <laughs> laugh. The officer checked all around the grounds, but never saw her again that night. A month later, the same officer saw a light on in the conservatory again. As he entered this time, he felt a rush of cold air and then someone touching his shoulder. When he turned around, he saw the same lady in white yet again. He became so terrified that he fainted. When he told his superiors what had happened, he was immediately fired. Now, let's move up the walkway to the front door of the White House, but we're not going inside just yet. This door has had a ghost attached to it ever since the assassination of President Lincoln. For over 100 years, different staff members have claimed to hear the frantic pounding on the door and a woman screaming, <laughs> crying, and pleading for President Andrew Johnson to spare her mother's life. The ghost is Anna Stewart. Anna's mother, Mary Stewart, was arrested as a co-conspirator in the assassination of President Lincoln. Mary was accused of taking part in the conspiracy that got President Lincoln killed. She was found guilty and sentenced to death by hanging. She was the first woman to be executed by the U.S. federal government. Throughout the trial, Mary's daughter Anna stood by her side and believed her to be innocent. In the weeks leading up to her mother's sentence execution, Anna reportedly went to the White House begging for an appointment with the new president, Andrew Johnson. She begged for her mother's life to be spared, but he refused. She spent the last few nights before her mother's execution pounding on the door and screaming for the president to help save her mother. Obviously, this never happened, and the ghost of Anna has been seen and heard still begging for the president to save her mother's life. Now that we are inside the White House, I have two different hauntings to talk about first, and they are eerily similar. If you really dig into the history of documented hauntings, it appears that they begin around 1853 when President Franklin Pierce took office. Now, I had never heard of this guy before, and after learning about him, I can see why I didn't, because he's truly the forgotten president. However, after learning about his personal life, I'm also shocked that I've never heard of him before. Franklin Pierce was a general in the Mexican-American War and had been elected to the State House of Representatives for New Hampshire three times. He married Jane Applegate in 1834, and they tragically lost their firstborn child only a few days after the baby's birth. They again lost their second son to an illness at age four. This was really hard for Jane to handle, and people began to refer to her as melancholy. This was a word used in the 1800s to describe someone who was suffering from deep depression. Jane came from a strict religious upbringing. Her father was Reverend Dr. Jesse Applegate, 
a Calvinist preacher, and Jane hated politics and drinking, even though her husband loved both. So it's truly one of those opposites attract kind of situations here. After the death of their second son, she begged Frank to stop being involved in politics. He did quit, but it didn't last long because he soon threw his hat into the ring to run for the presidency. He found a way to hide this from Jane until she found out that he was elected by the Democratic Party. According to witnesses, when she found out that he was elected to run, she fainted on the spot. Jane and Franklin only had one son left at this time, and Jane became obsessed with keeping Billy safe, but she took it so far that even back then it was seen as a bit unhealthy. Franklin was a doughface, a term used to describe Northerners with Southern sympathies. Tensions were high in the U.S. as fights over slavery were erupting on the congressional floor. Even with all of this tension, Frank ended up winning the election and he was getting ready to transition into the White House. On January 6, 1852, only two months before his inauguration day, the president-elect, his wife Jane, and their 11-year-old son Billy were traveling via rail train to Massachusetts. During the journey, their passenger train became unhooked and the train derailed. Frank held on to his wife and the seat he was sitting on and he made a frantic grab for his son but missed his arm by inches. Billy was thrown around the rail car as it tipped over and rolled down a hillside. When the car came to a stop, Jane and Frank rushed over to their son's unmoving body. And when Jane lifted her son's hat from his head, a horrible sight met their eyes. Their poor 11-year-old son Billy's head had been crushed. Now, that is a horrible thing to happen to anyone, but especially to a family that was about to take over the most important job in the country. Jane blamed Franklin for Billy's death and was never the same. When they moved into the White House, she would not speak to anyone. She'd spend weeks alone in her room and would wander around the house in morning clothes. Jane could not accept the fact that her son was gone and would spend hours writing heart-wrenching letters to Billy as if he was still alive. The press was super rude to her too, and they started dubbing her the Phantom of the White House. Eventually, Jane decided that she wanted to talk to Billy, even if it meant putting her religious beliefs aside. She went to the best people for the job at this time, the Fox Sisters. Now, I think I've covered the Fox Sisters before a little bit, but I do not have time to talk about them in depth right now, so if you don't know who they are, I'll give you the quick version. The Fox Sisters were Maggie and Kate Fox, and they were sisters who became famous for being able to supposedly communicate with the dead through seances. Basically, they would sit around a table and the dead would reach out with knocking sounds for yes or no questions. Now, there's way more to the story than that, but they basically started the spiritualist movement. So whether they were frauds or not is a whole other debate that I'm not going to get into right now. But back in Pierce's time, the Fox sisters were seen as legit. So poor Jane was not doing well mentally. According to one of her staff members' accounts, she took to playing the piano by hitting only one key over and over again while staring off into space and when she was not wandering the house she was laying in bed silently staring at walls or crying desperate to talk to her son she finally gained enough energy to contact the fox sisters for assistance now here's where things get interesting there is little documentation about this the only way we know that this even happened is from a letter that was written by maggie fox's husband elijah kane telling his wife that he wanted her to stop meeting with the president's wife for seances and that he knew that she had done it more than once. So it sounds like he felt uncomfortable about the whole situation. The thing about community 
communicating with the spirit world is you don't always know who you're talking to or what's on the other side communicating with you, and things can become dangerous quick. The meetings with the Fox sisters seem to have worked because not long after a few sessions, James claimed to have seen her beloved Billy multiple times. Staff even reported hearing Jane playing with a child and laughter coming from her room. Now, the age-old question is, did Jane let in an apparition of Billy or was it something more sinister? Many paranormal locations that I have covered have hauntings, but when I cover a place that has seen much sadness and death, a darker energy seems to be attached to the property. For instance, many asylums and prisons seem to have a dark energy that some call the creeper. Other locations have what some would consider a demon. Demons are an ancient entity that attaches itself to great tragedy and feeds off of fear and chaos. And most of the time, they like to cause the chaos. Personally, I'm not one to fall into the demon trend that's going on right now in the paranormal world, but I will admit that the White House would be a good spot to hang out for an entity that likes to cause chaos and feed off of angry energy. And uh, remember, the Civil War was about to pop off too really soon after this administration. So it gets way more interesting too. Listen to this. Around the same time that Jane started seeing her son, Billy, was the same time that President Pierce started making some really bad decisions. He signed into law the Kansas-Nebraska Act in 1854, and this would be his biggest mistake as president. This law made the people living in new territories decide for themselves if slavery should be legal or not. But this caused thousands of men on both sides of the issue to run to the territories and vote for what each thought was right. This led to years of bloody riots and vigilante mobs and moved the country even closer to civil war. This event is known as Bleeding Kansas in our history books. The Pierce family came into the White House broken, fresh off the heels of great tragedy. Jane called out to her deceased son for comfort and a little boy that looked like her son started appearing in the White House. After his appearances began, Franklin kept making more and more questionable decisions and his own party turned their back on him. Franklin's own mental health began to decline as he was being plagued with bad dreams and visions. He was a one-term president and left office being considered the biggest failure of any U.S. president. Jane passed away 10 years later and her husband Franklin, overcome with depression, drank himself to death. But it's what Jane left behind that has haunted the White House ever since. When the Lincolns moved into the White House, it did not take long for President Abraham to sense that something was off about the house. Lincoln started to have visions of horrible things happening, including his own death. First Lady Mary Todd Lincoln started her job with optimism. She found the house to be rather dark and dreary, so she worked with designers to create and redesign the home to make it more warm and welcoming. Even with the change, it could not keep tragedy from striking. When their son Willie was 11 years old, he passed away of typhoid fever. Mary began locking herself away in her room for weeks on end, refusing to come out, and when she finally did, she was dressed in all mourning clothes. To help her cope, she began attending seances held in nearby Georgetown. Then she started hosting seances at the White House in the Red Room. It is believed that she hosted at least eight seances and that President Lincoln also attended a few of them. The parallels between the Lincolns and the Pierces is really eerie. Yet another president's son died at age 11 and started to come visit his mother 
after a few seances inside the house. As the sightings of Willie increased, President Lincoln started to have strange dreams. One night, he thought he had awoken from a fitful night's sleep and heard the sound of crying coming from all directions. He wandered around the house searching for the sound and finally found his way into one of the main rooms on the ground floor. It was here that he saw the outline of a body covered in a sheet with guards stationed around it. He asked one of the soldiers who had died in the White House, and the man turned to him and said, the President of the United States. He was killed by an assassin. Lincoln then woke up sitting bolt upright. He was laying back in his bed, but the dream was so vivid that he was sure it was real. As we all know now, that vision came true. Lincoln saw multiple visions of his death throughout his presidency. The ghost of Willie Lincoln has been seen several times. In the 1870s, staff members from the Grant administration claimed to have had encounters with the ghost of Willie Lincoln as well. While Lincoln's ghost is the most prominent ghost seen in the White House, he's not the only one. President Andrew Jackson's ghost is another visitor to the White House. Mary Todd Lincoln claimed to have heard him swearing and stomping around in his old bedroom, the Rose Room. Apparently, others have heard noises like banging, screaming, and shouting, and cussing as well. Not really surprising since we just talked about how violent Jackson could be. There are reports that an apparition bothered President Chester Arthur at night. President Arthur became president after the assassination of President Garfield in 1881. In an 1883 article in the Washington Critic, President Arthur described the ghost that was known to haunt the second floor bedrooms. And this is a really unique description. President Arthur said that it was the ghost of an old man with a glowing white beard and long white hair. His eyes were glaring and he had long scrawny fingers. He was hunched over and when he walked, he made no sound. But when he was seen, he left an electrically charged feeling to the air. According to records, this same apparition was also known for bothering President Grant at night while he was trying to do work in his office. Still to this day, nobody has any idea who the apparition of this man could be. Another apparition seen in the White House is that of Abigail Adams. Even though her time in the White House was short, she seemed to like visiting it from time to time. Remember that letter that Abigail sent to her daughter about their first impressions of the White House? In it, she spoke of having to hang laundry in the East Room. Well, staff members have claimed to smell wet laundry and a lavender scent in that room ever since. Some have claimed to see her ghost wearing a cap and a lace shawl with her arms outstretched in front of her as if she's carrying a load of laundry. The ghost of Thomas Jefferson has been known to play the violin in the yellow oval room. Many have heard him playing in the empty room and when staff members go to check it out, the music stops when they open the door. Another ghost to be seen and heard inside the yellow oval room is David Burns. David was the previous owner of the land that the White House and most of DC stands on today. In 1961, a seamstress for the White House wrote about her memories that she had while she worked in the house. In one of the letters, she wrote about an experience President Franklin D. Roosevelt's valet had. According to her writings, he heard a disembodied voice in the yellow oval room say, I am Mr. Burns. Later on, during President Truman's administration, a guard heard the same thing. During this time, the Secretary of State was named Mr. Burns, so the guard tried to find him only to discover 
that the secretary wasn't at the White House that day. Many people think that the ghost of Mr. Burns still comes back to check on what was once his property. In 1911, during President Taft's administration, the White House was haunted by what the White House staff called the thing. President Taft sent his top military aide, Major Archibald Butt, to look into the ghost sightings. He described the ghost in a letter to his sister Clara. He said that the apparition was of a boy, about 14 or 15 years old. People would feel light pressure on their shoulders as if he's leaning over to see what they are doing. The ghost was very upsetting to the White House staff. President Taft put out an order that if anyone repeated the ghost stories of the thing, they would be fired. And I find this really interesting. One, you don't task a top military leader with looking into a ghost story unless you saw something or enough people have been coming to you telling you the story. And two, it's another ghost child being seen in the White House yet again at a time that World War I was about to kick off. It was about three years before it, and all the world leaders knew this war was coming. So again, that's really creepy. The most common ghost to have been seen in the White House is Abraham Lincoln. He seems to show up most often when the country is going through difficult times. He has been seen in the Yellow Oval Room and the Lincoln Bedroom, which is the room he used as an office. He's also showed up in other places around the property. Jeremiah Jerry Smith worked in the White House for about 35 years, beginning in the late 1860s with President Grant. He was quite the storyteller and enjoyed talking with reporters. His stories included ghost sightings of Grant, McKinley, and many first ladies, but President Lincoln is the ghost he claimed to see the most. Jerry said that he would see him sometimes gliding on the staircase and standing in various rooms with a somber look on his face. Jerry is not the only person to have seen the ghost of President Lincoln. First Lady Grace Coolidge lived in the White House from 1923 to 1929. She once saw President Lincoln standing in the Oval Office, staring out the window. It seemed as if he was looking across the Potomac River toward the battlefield of the Civil War. Lincoln's visits increased during the Great Depression and World War II. During Franklin D. Roosevelt's administration, when he served four terms from 1933 to 1945, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt made the Lincoln bedroom her personal study, and she stated that she often felt Lincoln's presence when she worked there late at night. And it's not just U.S. citizens who have seen the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. This story actually shocked me. Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands visited in 1942. One night, there was a knock on her bedroom door, and when she went to open it, she saw Abraham Lincoln's ghost wearing a top hat and everything. Stunned by his sudden appearance and what she was seeing, she fainted. If you've never heard of this one, this one also might shock you. Another famous sighting involves Winston Churchill, who visited the White House a few times during World War II. During one of his visits, he said that he had just finished his evening bath and came into his bedroom bare naked and smoking a cigar. He turned to see Abraham Lincoln sitting in a chair by the fireplace. After a few moments of stunned silence, Churchill claimed that he responded by saying, Good evening, Mr. President. You seem to have caught me at a disadvantage. Lincoln reportedly smiled at him and then vanished. One evening, President Johnson's wife, Lady Bird, was watching a TV show about Abraham Lincoln's death, and she said that she could feel his presence in the room during the episode. During President Reagan's administration, his wife, First Lady Nancy Reagan, was a believer of astrology, horoscopes, and star charts. It was reported that the president would decide last minute not to leave the White House because his wife would 
tell him that it was not a good day according to both of their horoscopes. Reagan was confronted by a reporter who asked when he was going to stop letting the stars tell him what to do. And to this, Reagan angrily yelled back that he would never let a star chart tell him what to do because it never happened in the first place. Even though he said this to the press, Nancy was still a firm believer in astrology. She was known for bringing in astrology experts to help her make important decisions. Other than star charts, the family did have some paranormal encounters. President Reagan's dog, Rex, refused to enter the Lincoln's bedroom. He would just stand outside of the door and bark and growl at it. Reagan's daughter and son-in-law said that they saw an apparition in the Lincoln bedroom more than once. Reports of hauntings have happened in every administration. Even modern-day presidents and their families have seen strange things. President Obama and his wife, First Lady Michelle Obama, had a strange encounter while living in the White House. Not long after moving in, President Obama and Michelle had a weird experience at night. They said that they were awoken from their bed to strange sounds coming from the hallway. They both got up to check it out and they could not find a cause for the noise. On another occasion, Michelle confessed to Barack that not long after moving in, she began to feel a strange presence when alone and she had been hearing strange sounds coming from empty rooms. Four years ago on the Today Show, host Jenna Bush Hager told a creepy story of an experience she and her sister Barbara Bush had while living in the White House during their father, George W. Bush's presidency. Jenna said that one night the phone in their room rang and it woke them up. Then both girls started to hear 1920s piano music coming from the fireplace. Jenna got scared and jumped into her sister's bed. One week later, the same thing happened, but this time the music coming from the fireplace was old opera music. Jenna said it really creeped them both out, but both girls tried to calm down and find a rational explanation. After the second time of this happening though, Jenna went to a man who worked at the White House named Buddy and she told him that he would not believe what they had heard and Buddy turned to her and said, oh Jenna, you wouldn't believe what I've heard. It seems that the ghosts of the White House are something that every new president's administration will have to deal with. And just think, if these are the stories that we know about publicly, I can't imagine the ones that were covered up. Some administrations threatened to fire staffers and workers if they ever discuss the hauntings. There are many types of different hauntings here. While some apparitions are just stuck replaying moments of their lives, some seem to enjoy feeding off the darker moments in history, lingering around to feed off the chaos. Other times, spirits of the past seem to enjoy giving advice to new presidents and checking in from time to time to see how the country's doing. Whether you believe in ghosts or not, that is up to you. But I must say, when this many former presidents, a prime minister, and a queen, along with other top officials, have seen spirits, I find it hard to deny that there might be something strange going on inside the White House. Thank you all so much for joining me for today's episode. I had so much fun covering this topic, but I'm not going to lie. That was a really long episode. My brain is kind of tired. It took me about five days to do the recording for this, and it took me two weeks to do all the research, type up the scripts and different things. Um, I hope that you guys enjoyed it. 
And I really am happy to be back and turning this into a business. So um, like I said at the top of the show, don't forget to go and check out my new website, historicallyhauntedpodcast.com. You can find out more info about me and a bunch of other goodies over there. And don't forget to check out my brand new merchandise shop over at historicallyhauntedpodcast.myspreadshop.com. For two weeks starting today, you can get 15% off of your first order. As always, sources to all of my research are linked down below in the show notes, so go ahead and go check those out. There's so many more fun facts to be found about the White House that I just did not have time to cover. Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and also now Threads. Uh, I don't know how Threads is going to do. I feel like everyone was interested in it the first two days it was online, and now I feel like it's kind of dropped off, but um, I still find it better than Twitter, so I am over on the Threads, and I do kind of post, you know, more, a little bit more updates about what's going on and things like that. Also, so if you want to find my Patreon page to learn what that's all about, I have a link to that down below. I'm changing things over there, how I'm doing things. So I haven't had time to edit that, but um, things are going to change up a little bit, but I still only have two tiers. I have $1 and a $3. So if you want to support me in any way, please uh, consider becoming a Patreon or you can buy some merchandise that would also really help me out as well. But if you don't want to do that or can't, don't worry about it. That's a okay. I will still be having these for free for you to listen to. As soon as I can crank out new episodes, they will be dropped on all of the apps out there for you to find podcasts on. So again, thank you all so much for listening. I really appreciate all the support. I've been seeing the comments of people telling me not to give up and keep going and they know how hard it is to start a small business. And uh, I'm officially making my business also an LLC. I'm in the process of doing that. So there's so much going on right now and my head is spinning, but I'm still enjoying what I do because I love making these episodes for you. So again, thank you all so much for listening to the show. Um, I hope to see you guys back here really soon on Historically Haunted. Oh, one more thing. Make sure you go sign up for the new e-newsletter. I have not had time, any time at all, to get that completely set up. So if you want to just add your name to the list, you will be getting an email very soon. As soon as I have time, probably Sunday, I'll probably figure all that out. I'll make a welcome e-newsletter and the August e-newsletter very, very shortly. But if you want to go add your list so that way I have some people to send it to, <laughs> that'd be great because right now I only have mine on there and that would be weird. But uh, anyway, so thank you again so much for your support. I can't wait to see you guys back here really soon on Historically Haunted. Bye, everybody. Bye.